Thank y'all. Michelle read 1 Samuel chapter 27, 1 to 12 to you, and so I invite you to turn there. That's going to be our text, and I'm not going to reread it to you, but we'll have uh, some verses from that text that appear on the screen, and you can follow along in your own Bible as well. And today's sermon is going to continue our series. It's not going to be just as we didn't do a Mother's Day sermon. I'm not going to preach a specific Father's Day sermon to you. That'd be a little unfair, wouldn't it? Uh, but mainly also for the same reason we don't, I don't do those is, is there's just not a lot of material. You know, you, uh, we talk about God as being our Heavenly Father, but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to preaching a just Father's Day sermon all the time, uh, at, least, at least for me. And so uh, as we continue in this series, I do want to start off, though, talking about something that my father always told me growing up, and it was the importance of doing my best in everything that I did. And uh, we often say that to kids when they play sports. Uh, I didn't play a lot of sports, but uh, I did do karate. And I would travel across the state, sometimes across the country, competing in karate tournaments. And the highlight of that for me was actually getting to go to Washington, D.C. when I was about 12 and competing in a karate tournament and placing second in an international competition. And uh, for me, that day, that was my best, as disappointing as not getting first place was but there were other times when my best meant going to a tournament 20 minutes from my home and not getting anything but it was still my best and I can hear my dad just like it was yesterday just do your best and have fun is what he would tell me those are the two most important things and I've tried to pass that along as, as Emily's kind of budding in her athletic uh, abilities and, and starting to try different things and uh, I try to encourage her to always do her best. And, and, and for her as well, that best looks different. Uh, this couple years ago, or a year or so ago when she played basketball, her best was just happened to be on the team that won the championship. And, and that was her best. Uh, but that same year when she played t-ball, her best meant breaking her arm and only playing two games. Uh, but she gave her best. Uh, and this past year when she played softball, uh, machine pitch softball for the first time, her best was uh, learning a lot and growing a lot in her abilities to hit and run and playing third base uh, and being on the team that was fourth in the overall standings. But it was her best. And so I tried to tell her that was great and I'm proud of her. Uh, and so in life, when we think about doing our best, everyone's best looks different. But the thing is, when we talk about doing our best, sometimes we misunderstand what that means. And sometimes we, we say doing our best but what we really mean is doing the best. Uh, we confuse the two. And, and we get upset when we do our best and it doesn't turn out to be the best in all situations, in all circumstances. And we wonder, well, what did we do wrong? Or we play the what if game. You know, I, I did my best and it didn't turn out right. And then we also use it sometimes talking about doing our best uh, almost as an excuse. Have you ever tried to encourage someone or help someone, give someone some advice, and they responded, well, I'm doing my best. That's, that's not really what doing your best is about. If you really are doing your best, you're going to want to do all you can to make your best better. It's not an insult when someone says that. You want to make your best better. And I think the core of the misunderstandings we have sometimes, especially in, in the Christian view, when we talk about doing our best, is, is sometimes a misunderstanding in, in theology. There's a book that came out several years ago. It sold millions of copies called Your Best Life Now. 
And I don't want to pick on the guy that wrote it, but the, the book itself actually has some decent advice. It talks about trying your best. It talks about giving all that you have. It talks about you know, not living in regrets and things like that. Great, great advice to live by. And I, I think that that's advice we should live by. The problem is not the advice that it gives, but the problem is what it promises when you follow that advice. It says, God wants you to have a good life, a life filled with love, joy, peace, and fulfillment. And, and I think that's mostly true. I, we could probably nitpick at it and find something wrong with it, but I, 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 that's, that's, we'll, we'll say that's good. But then it goes on to say, that doesn't mean it will always be easy, but it does mean that it will always be good. I don't think Scripture promises that. Scripture does promise in Romans 8 that all things work together for good. But it doesn't say that everything, if you give your best, will always be good. Sometimes there's some bad stuff. Sometimes there's some things that we have to deal with that I don't think God is even happy about. And if anyone expected goodness to come their way, I think it has to be David in our text. He'd been anointed to be the king of Israel by Samuel who died and still hadn't seen that come to fulfillment. He'd served King Saul valiantly, beginning at the very beginning when he defeated Goliath, remember? And then he started playing the harp for him, and then he commanded a huge, an army of men for him. And, and now he's at the point where, where Saul's become jealous because he's killed more men than him, and, and he's, he's banished him to the, the wilderness, and he's chasing after him, and he, and he wants his life. David even speaks of the Lord as being somehow involved in this, delivering Saul into his hands a couple times. And in this text, we see again where, where Saul is delivered into David's hand. Or, or that was just, uh, last Sunday's text. But this text begins very differently. And it tells us that the best that David could do, his very best, was escaping to the land of the Philistines. Escaping to the land of, of his own people's enemies. That's the best? Really? That's the best thing you could do? I don't imagine that felt very good. And the thing is, doing your best, not doing the best, doing your best may not always feel good. But we do it because it, it's, it's part of survival. We do our best sometimes just so we can survive. When Michelle and I first moved to Gatesville, we planted three trees with, with immense help from her family and, and mostly uh, from my brother-in-law. And, and he helped us plant them and fertilize them and, and uh, you know, tie them so they wouldn't fall over when the wind blew and everything. Uh, we also borrowed, uh, it was Johnny's, I borrowed Johnny's plow and we, made, we didn't have any landscaping so we made a little flower bed and uh, planted some things, and most of them's died, and we've had to plant more things. Uh, we we uh, put some, some fertilizer on our lawn that was newly sodded at that point. And if, you go, if you've got, been by our house, you can see how much of that lasted and how much of it didn't. Uh, the yard doesn't look great. It's got weeds that grow in it. Uh, I try to cut the weeds every now and again. And the flower bed may look okay, depending when we cleaned it out last. You know, we keep things somewhat alive in it. But the trees have really stood the test of time, and they've grown, and, and every year it seems like they look bigger and better, and they even provide a little bit of shade for the kids to play in the yard. 
And, and every time my brother-in-law comes over, he knows how I am. And, you know, I'm not the greatest keeping up that kind of stuff. He always says, man, I can't believe Matt let those trees live this long. The thing is, keeping trees alive once they've rooted is not very hard. Because once a tree roots, that's basically a decision on the tree's part to survive. And roots can grow 12, 30, 40 meters into the ground and, and, and bring water to the tree and, and, and sometimes do it more efficiently than, than pumps that, that, people have, that we've created. But once it roots, it's this decision to survive. And, and even if you take the tree away, you take everything on top away, so it'll, it'll, sometimes it'll grow back. And so if a tree makes a decision to survive like that, if God made it that way, then he creates us to do our best and to survive in the situations we find ourselves in. David decided to put roots down, if you will, in the land of the Philistines. And we're kind of told this story from a bird's eye view. We know that it's temporary. We know that it doesn't last. But David has no idea what's going to happen. In verse uh, verse 3, it'll be on your screen. It says, David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had two wives, and Ahoam and Jezreel of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Settled in this sense refers to a, a, a very just what it says, a, a stable, permanent way of living. David is not just kind of waiting time out to see what's, what's going to happen. He's decided, well, this is just going to, it's what I have to do. It's what I have to survive. It's going to have to be how I live. And, and who knows when it's going to be over. And that wasn't an easy decision because he had to move. Not only is, is he not knowing what's going to happen, but he had to make this decision to move. It was about 30 miles from, from where he was to, to Gath, to where he's moving to. And, and it wasn't as simple as it is today. Like when we moved from Waco to Gatesville, we just packed up a U-Haul and drove down and we could make as many trips as we want. It says that he moved with 600 men. And that also implies that he's taking those men and their belongings and their families. And he has two wives and his belongings. This was a pretty big ordeal. And, and can't you just hear some of them complaining? David, is this the best we could do? Really? We're moving with the Philistines? Like, this is going backward. You're supposed to be the king and you're moving with the enemies. This is the best that you can do? That's kind of, I don't think David was laughing. But it's kind of funny that, that God used these Philistines. Remember when David defeated Goliath, the, the Philistine, to bring him into Saul's life. And now he's using these same people to bring him out of Saul's life. He's doing his best. We do our very best with what God allows to come our way. And sometimes it doesn't feel good, but we know that God is involved in the process. I spoke with a lady in our church last Sunday, and she was just, you know, t telling me some of the, the, the things that, that her and, her and her husband, they're older, and the things that they have to deal with. And she was talking about a medical condition that, that she had, and, and right when she felt, like she, she felt like she got that under control, they found out that her husband had, had something. And she said, it feels like these days, we just, the only time we get out of the house is to go to the doctor or the hospital or the pharmacy. And she kind of laughed about it. And she said, at least we try and stop and eat, eat at a restaurant on the way and feel like we're on a date. That's just, she said, what we do. It's just kind of how things are going. And, and, and she has to do her best. And those of you who have young children fall on the other end of the spectrum, you don't want to go anywhere 
For one thing, because it costs money to take kids anywhere. But then another thing, uh, it's just such a hassle to get out of the house and, and, and to bring them. And, and it's, it's your very best to do and to take them and, 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 and everything that goes with it. The most any of us can do is our best and, and to survive. And whether that's caring for children or growing older or, or saving for retirement. And when you do those things, when you do your best, you eventually have to make some difficult decisions. David had to make some decisions on, on where he was going to live. According to Mark Batterson, he says, this is another guy that I don't quite agree with. He says, the primary reason most of us don't see God moving is simply because we aren't moving. If you want to see God, you need to make a move. And then he tells this story. He's a, a pastor at a, at a big church, and he tells a story about his first uh, week as a pastor at this church. The church wanted uh, to hire a drummer, and they were looking to do that. And, and he said he felt like to see God move, he needed to make a move. So he went out, and this was like in 1994, and he spent $400 on a, on a drum kit, which is not much money today. It was a little bit more then. And he, that was on a Thursday. And he said by that Sunday, they had their drummer. And that's a great story. I'm not telling him that God wasn't involved in that. But to say that this is the way it always is. We have to do something in order to see God do something. That's not always the way it is. It's a great story, but we make a lot of decisions. You know, Columbia researchers said that, that we make about 70 decisions a day, 25,500 decisions a year, and that's a little less than 2 million decisions over the course of your lifetime. Most of those decisions are, are pretty mundane, right? Am I going to brush my teeth? Am I not? You should, by the way. Uh, pretty, pretty small decisions. But a lot of them are really big. Where are we going to go to college? Who are we going to marry? How many kids are we going to have? Those are, those are big decisions. And many of them are difficult to make. And sometimes all we'll be able to do is, is to trust that God is, is in it somehow, even if we don't sense Him or feel Him, and, and do the best that we can. Don't you find it interesting that in this passage... That David is making this huge decision to go and live with, with Israel's enemies and he doesn't consult God or he doesn't explicitly say that he does and God is not mentioned, what he thinks about it, how, what he feels about it. Now there is a book in the Bible, uh, the book of Ruth, doesn't mention God's name once, but scholars believe that when you read it, it's obvious that God is in there and he's involved and he's orchestrating things. But the book of 1 Samuel is is not like that. All throughout 1 Samuel, you hear uh, the person that wrote it saying, God said this, God did that. He thought this about what Saul did or David did. And, and often you will see David explicitly approaching God, consulting God, not knowing what to do. But in this instance, in chapter 27, David announces, for some reason he came to this conclusion, the best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. And then we have 12 short verses that Michelle read where a year and four months of his life is, is just described. You know, like, like it's a drop in the bucket. Now, is that because he didn't consult God or because he didn't, as Mark Batterson says, it was because he didn't uh, move in order to see God move? He didn't, he didn't see a sign. He, he, he did something, but he didn't really see God's Presence or see what God thought about it. And so why all of a sudden in a book that's filled with God's activity does the, does the radio, so to speak, go silent? 
I think it's because David was in a situation where the best he could do was just make a tough and difficult decision. And you remember David's not a goofball, right? He, he ends up in this situation and, and he does the best that he can. And I'm not saying everything that he did was right. You remember uh, several chapters ago we, we, we were doing, going through this series. He told a lie to, to a priest to ensure his survival. And so if he, if he would lie to, to an Israelite priest, he's certainly not going to hesitate lying to, to, his, you know, his, to his enemies. And so he meets this guy, Achish. In verse 12, you read that Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. And that's because he was lying to him. He was telling him that he was out fighting his own people, when indeed he was actually out fighting the enemies of his own people. That's not the most honest thing to do. But here's where David's situation and ours differs drastically. David had to make a very difficult decision in the midst of honestly not having anyone to consult. The prophet of Samuel, the, the prophet, the person that, that spoke for God in his day was dead. And he simply was doing the best that he thought to do. And we are not in a situation like that. God ensured that no one following Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection would ever be isolated from his presence. In fact, he ensured that as a church, we would have him in one another. And he provided us with what we call community to encourage one another and to lift one another up so we could go to one another when we say, we're struggling with this. We have this difficult decision and we don't know what to do. And that someone could maybe speak a word to us that could speak the word of God in our lives. But often we don't avail ourselves to that because we don't want to put ourselves out there. You know, in the Quaker tradition, they have what's called a quake. This sounds like it was something from the 70s because they started it in the 70s. They call it a Quaker Clearness Committee. Doesn't that sound kind of weird? But here's what they do. When, when people in their church need to make a difficult decision, who to marry, you know, what to do with college or things like that, often they will have a meeting where it's a formal church kind of meeting that can last a couple of hours. And they will have people that have been trained in this process of asking clarifying questions. Not opinions, but asking questions that can help the person hear and discern what God might be leading them to do. And that's the goal of it. You know, as Baptists, we chafe at that a little bit. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Because what we do is have a business meeting and everybody votes what they want to do instead of what God might be leading them to do. And then we fight about it afterwards. That's not really the way it's supposed to work. That's not what we say we do, but that's often the way it ends up. Because we fail to look at Christ's presence in one another, to listen to one another, to, to think that, that God might actually be speaking to me through, through a friend, through, through a father figure, through a mentor. And there's no getting around it. Making difficult decisions, are, are, they're not fun, but God gave us one another to help in the midst of that. And we do that Looking at this text, knowing that, that the best thing, the best news, we can do our best knowing that everything that we go through is temporary. Look at verse 7. I haven't gone to these verses in order, but look, look at how long. We already mentioned this once, but I think it's interesting just to note this one little verse that tells us David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. A year and four months can feel like a long time, can it, when you're in the middle of something. But in the whole span of your life, that's not really a long time. 
And David was in, he was in Philistine territory, but he was in the country, you know. Uh, wasn't in the middle of everything where all the, the people would have their eyes on him. He's in country Philistine territory, but that's not a huge consolation. That's like an Aggie being glad that he lives in Round Rock instead of the heart of Austin. You know, he's, at least he's, he's not there, but, but he's not really in the promised land either. He's not where he wants to be. Sometimes in the Bible we read stories of, of great hardship, like that experienced by Joseph. And, and, and we look at that and we see how God worked in the middle of that and how God put everything together. But then we read stories like this, and it's not quite clear what God's plan is or, or, or why He's experiencing what He's experiencing. And, and we don't necessarily enjoy that thought, but I think it often mirrors reality for us. We don't often know. And so your time in Philistine territory, so to speak, might be dealing with, with chemo, having cancer. It might be dealing with, with a child that doesn't respond like you're hoping and wanting. It might be just having, going, going through problems with a spouse. And, and we wonder, is there going to be an end to that? And, and, and the news is at some point there will be. It may be a year and four months. It may be shorter than that. It may be longer than that. And that's difficult in, in our culture to think like that because we don't think in temporary terms. We think in, in terms, uh, even, even when we think about temporary things, we think of them as having this lasting value. Any fans here, you can admit it, of, of Marie Kondo, the U lady on YouTube that does the organizing, you know what I'm talking about? She, uh, she or, she's a professional organizer. And uh, she, she goes and people hire her to, to organize things for them and to really get rid of things. People who have cluttered homes or offices or certain spaces they want to clean up. And uh, she's kind of a spunky little Asian lady. People, people like her. But she has this phrase to help people determine whether they need to keep something or get rid of something. And she'll ask them, does this item spark joy? That's the phrase that she uses. And really, thanks to Wikipedia, I know that that is a, a Japanese term that means to flutter or throb or palpitate. That she's basing it on a Japanese term that, that means that. And uh, it, seemed, it seems kind of cute and, and harmless, but her philosophy, I'm not saying don't watch her, she's fun to watch, but her philosophy comes really from, from this, this Shinto religion idea where everything, even this pulpit, is inhabited with the Spirit of God. And so moving things around, organizing things, isn't just fixing things so it's nice to be around and you have a good room and it's functional. It's this exercise that somehow creates this lasting spiritual experience that reaches into, you know, has eternal significance for you. It's permanent joy. It's permanent peace through, through rearranging temporary things. But the Christian view is actually the opposite, isn't it? That, that nothing except God and, and the world that He's going to recreate has lasting significance. And so we don't try to rearrange things to have eternal value. We, we look at things and know, okay, well, nothing will last forever, so we're going to try to do the best that we can with what we have through God's help, through His grace, until He renews all things. This past weekend, Luke celebrated his fifth birthday, and it just blows my mind to think that he's already five. Emily will be eight uh, in September, and it just seems like yesterday we were bringing Emily home from the hospital, and 
I think if there's anything that has shown me the temporary nature of things, it's, it's being a parent. Because right when you get used to diapers, well, then it's time to potty train. And then right when you kind of get used to the idea of your kid crawling around, then they're walking. You know, all these little phases that you just go through and, and they're constantly changing. And, and, and none of it is, is permanent. And you try to enjoy it while you can. At the same time, you know, man, it sure would be nice when they finally get out of the diapers. And then they get out of the diapers and they need help going to the potty. You know, every time they go, Dad, I'm through. And then you think... Oh man, sometimes it was easier when they in diapers, you know, because you'd have to go clean them up and on the potty every time. That's temporary as well. Every one of those phases are, are temporary. And I don't think any parent honestly feels like they master any one of them because they're so temporary. And I don't think there's any parent that says, well, I figured out how to be a parent. I know how to do it. You just kind of do the best you can and you get to the end of it and you hope you don't mess your kids up too much. And uh, it, it's temporary. You try your best, but it's price, precisely because of the temporary nature of it, of the fleeting nature of it, that we want to do our best, because we want to do our best while we can. And I don't think living for Jesus is, is all that different. He, he calls his disciples in the New Testament, and he says, go and, and, and follow me. And, and if you look at the lives of the disciples, they were messed up and they didn't do it perfectly, but they do their best while they can. And most of the disciples didn't have a lot of time to do that. They ended up giving their life for Jesus. It reminds me of the elementary motto. My elementary school, I know Gatesville's elementary has a motto because I heard them say it over the speaker one time when I went there for uh, a party or something for Emily. But, but I don't remember that one. But I remember ours because it was very easy. Uh, our school motto in elementary school was we look our best, we act our best, we do our best. We are our best. Very simple, but very, I thought, as a, as a kid, just kind of pounded it into my head. Did my best in everything. And, and I think that our administrators or whoever made that up, it was on our, our cafeteria wall. I can still see the, the painting. I, I think they recognized, just as everyone that's a teacher here, an administrator understands, that, that some kids don't come from the best of situations. Sometimes they don't have the best parents. And so that motto was not to get them to be the best, but to help them to do the very best they could in spite of situations that they may not control. In Christ, we can be our best in spite of all that happens that is not for the best. How would God ask you today to do your very best in the situation that you find yourselves in? Pray with me. God, I'm so thankful that you allow us to be the exact thing you want us to be in each and every phase of life. And Lord, for the moments when we just feel like we don't measure up, like we're inadequate, like we should be like someone else, God, would you remind us that in you and through you, we are all that we need to be. And God, would you help us to be that very best thing for for children and for grandchildren, for families and for friends and for parents, and for our church. And God, I pray that feeling like we're inadequate wouldn't keep us from, from being obedient to your leadership and your guidance, and that we would be thankful that in you we can live and move and have our being. 
Would you lead us and guide us to do so today according to what you want for us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have our time of response and invite you to respond uh, to God's best for your life, whether it feels good or not. And if that requires a, a decision that you want to come forward,